All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And I'm really pleased to have John Merrick return with me after the break. Uh, we were talking uh, about the basic uh, balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, what's on the asset and liability side. Uh, John really pointed out that the equity of the Federal Reserve is, is fairly negligible uh, compared to the total size of the Federal Reserve, but that does raise the question, John, who are the owners of the Federal Reserve? Well, the Federal Reserve is broken up into basically two entities, one government and then one in the uh, private sector. The um, the government is where Bernanke is, and it's uh, referred to as the Board of Governors, and that's the uh, big building they show in Washington is where they are housed. They carry out the monetary policy along with some of the members of the private organizations uh, of the banks that are make up the other side. So the other side is uh, where are the Federal Reserve Banks, and each Federal Reserve Bank is an incorporated uh, bank, but it's different than the um, corporations people are familiar with on Wall Street. They're they're restricted in their um, dividends that they receive. It's all set by the federal the Board of Governors. What what they receive, even the Board of Governors, which is a government agency, actually will have some say in who can be elected to it, to the to be the president of the of the each of the twelve. Federal Reserve Bank. So I would call it quasi-government. Quasi uh, often I hear people say that the Federal Reserve is, is no more federal than Federal Express. I think that's probably a stretch from or very much a stretch from reality because mm -hmm. there are government uh, portions of it and, and they and then Congress created them, and they can very much uh, uncreate them as well. So, so they're definitely uh, a uh, a mix of the two, and that was the intention of its founding. Sure. Well, we uh, certainly have have talked a lot about the intent of some of the founders, and there's some uh, issues there. With um, we we talked to uh, you know people like Ed Griffin. Uh, who wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island, the book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, Ed is quite convinced that the founders and the people that were behind the Federal Reserve really wanted to socialize risk and privatize profits, and it cer certainly seems to be what, what has taken place to a great extent in recent years. On the other hand, when we had Ron Paul on this show, 
Ron was uh, was hesitant to try to assign intent to the people that were behind uh, the, the creation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, but he would rather just look at what the Federal Reserve policy is doing and and uh, you know and, and leave it go at that. But in any event, um, when Bernanke, we, we've heard a lot about you talked about it, QE1 and QE2. He expanded the Fed's balance sheet by how much? Well, the, the balance sheet was essentially a trillion uh, before the crisis, and now it's approaching close to three trillion. Wow. Nearly right now, price. and right now it's pretty much held uh, constant. It will be held constant, and unless they announce another uh, QE, I would expect it. It's right now it's close to 2.9 trillion. I would expect to keep it. It would just it's just going to stay in that position until we hear something different mm-hmm. from the FOMC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, John, I've seen a, a chart of quantitative easing, and it actually has gradually, it seems like, been growing in terms of the Fed buying treasuries over the last number of years. Uh, and then it just exploded uh, in terms of purchases of um, mortgage-backed securities as well as treasuries, and you also mentioned the agency, uh, the, the agency debt. Uh, I guess Freddie and Fannie and those those organizations, um, but um, where did so that's how they that's what the Federal Reserve did that's what it it went out and bought that that's what it put on its assets side of its balance sheet, but where did it get the money to do that? that that's one of the mysteries that many people don't think of. I'm very glad that you um, brought that up. The money is just created out of thin air. It's just poofs into existence. I, a lot of people refer to it as printing money. Mm-hmm. I think that's confusing when people say printing money because people picture the Bureau of Engraving and Printing right. and right. seeing the lines of, of Federal Reserve notes going through. That is not the case. It's easier than that. All they have to do is type it in the computer uh, ledgers and, and create money out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, it, it is just... That's it comes out of nothing. Yeah, that's 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 just hard to fathom. And this is, you know, what Murray Rothbard talked about. I guess the mystery of banking. It's it's mysterious. And most people, as you said earlier, uh, most people just think that there is some gold backing that it really is pieces of paper. It represents something tangible, because it used to. And in fact, I remember when my son was in eighth grade, his I was shocked when he came home, and and uh, actually this was a sophomore year in high school, I think, he, and I was shocked when he came home and said that his history history teacher told him that the dollar was still backed by gold. That's what he thought. So that uh, just goes to show you uh, the level of understanding uh, from people who are supposed to know something about it. Do you, we've had QE1, QE2. Uh, the markets right now, as we're talking here in in September are looking very, very shaky. The European situation is getting worse by the day, it seems. Uh, Our markets, our equity markets, are not looking very good right now. Do you think uh, we'll see a QE3? A simple answer at this time, no. And I'll explain uh, how I come to that conclusion. Uh, I often hear people say stealth QE3. I've read that in some blogs. I don't Mm -hmm. understand how they come up with that term because to me, quantitative easing is it, it's 
it's the purchasing of securities and mm-hmm. nothing else. You know, um, you know, there's ways that the Federal Reserve can ease policy with other actions. Uh, we talked about the reserve requirements earlier, and then how it influences the the interest rates through the repo markets is another form. But quantitative easing to me is creating money just out of thin air. The most direct way of 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 the injecting money in the system instantaneously. And the reason I don't believe we're going to see QE3 anytime soon, it obviously can change with with changing circumstances, is the way that Bernanke gave his monetary policy report to Congress in mid-July. He broke down how the Federal Reserve's actions how they would be if the threat of deflation was on board. Mm -hmm. And then he also talked about the threat of inflation. Mm -hmm. And I'll go through each basic action he says the Federal Reserve can do. Okay. So the first one, if the threat of deflation is there, the Federal Reserve said in mid-July in Bernanke's speeches, a specific period of time of keeping the low federal funds rate. And that has already happened. We've, mm-hmm. we've heard that till they seek to hold the federal funds rate at at a low rate for until mid 2013. Mm-hmm. So there's chalk one up for their threat of deflation. You could say that that is an easing policy. So maybe the Federal Reserve believes that. Mm-hmm. And then they he went on to refer to other things that the Federal Reserve can do. He said he, they can give a specific period of time that they're going to hold their balance sheet at an elevated level, which we said is roughly about $2.9 trillion mm-hmm. right now. We might as well just call it $3 trillion. Hold it there for uh, – give a specific period of time like they did with the federal funds rate. Mm-hmm. Another uh, action was they can – a purchase or the rollover of the securities that they hold and buy longer-term uh, treasuries. That's one I've, I've been reading a lot of people talking about. So as the Federal Reserve's mortgage-backed securities, agency debt matures along with their treasury uh, holdings, they can then they can, they reinvest these things and they can re- reinvest it in longer-term uh, treasuries mm-hmm. with the longer maturity. And thereby keep the interest rates on the long end of the yield curve lower. And that, that's their hope. Mm-hmm. So that was the third action mm-hmm. that they can they, they said that they can take. The fourth one is they can reduce the interest paid on the excess reserves that mm-hmm. are held at the Federal Reserve Banks. Mm-hmm. And that's one I'd like to explore more in the future, what I believe about that. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, I'll just move on to the fifth one, which mm-hmm. is quantitative easing, buying uh-huh. more securities. That's uh-huh. their fifth action that they can take if the threat of deflation. But many people just focus on that side. In that speech, he went on to say, what about the threats of inflation? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the first one is they can they can cease to reinvest the principal of of the mortgage-backed securities, all their agency debt, they would just let that roll over. And actually, quantitative easing would start to decrease at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second action could be modify – they can modify their forward guidance in its statements. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how that would be. I, I think it would be maybe a 
that it could, that's pretty open-ended in how they want mm-hmm. to word things as mm-hmm. far as the threat of inflation. Mm-hmm. The fourth well, they- is is to increase the federal funds rate, which uh, we don't expect to see since they've given us a specific period. And then the last uh, policy that they can move forward with with the threat of inflation is they will initiate a temporary drain on reserves. And Mm -hmm. they do that through what's called the reserve repurchase agreement. Mm -hmm. And no one is talking about this, but that action is actually occurring, and that's – an action that they should be taking if they feel there is a threat of inflation. So you're saying that is ter- that is taking place now? It is taking place right now. And within the past four, uh, actually the past five weeks, the it has increased every week except this past week, which it slightly decreased. So it's basically flat. But the reserve, the reverse repurchase agreement, which uh, many people probably are not familiar with, is basically it's a temporary quantitative easing measure, a repurchase agreement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead of buying securities and holding them until maturity, which was how I referred to quantitative easing, repurchase agreements are actually temporary holdings of securities. So a reverse repurchase agreement instead of buying securities, they're actually in agreement with a primary dealer or a foreign central bank. They're in agreement to actually they sell securities to them, draining cash out of the system temporarily, and then re-injecting it. But from the way the reverse repurchase agreement has changed, it's gone from Roughly 60. It's been it's been bouncing about in the about the 65 billion mark, mm-hmm. basically for the past you know through most of the spring, and then just at the beginning of August it increased to 97 billion. Mm. Wow! And then it had a slight decrease to 96 billion. And has then steadily increased until its peak of 105 billion on August 24th balance sheet. Hmm. I'm sorry, August 31st balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right now it's elevated at about 100 billion, and so it has it's elevated a, a good solid 60 billion in about a month and a half, and, it, and it's been staying stable. I actually thought it would just be a temporary blip, come back down. But that is a temporary drain of money out of out of the money system, a reverse repurchase agreement. And we hadn't seen levels that high for reverse repurchase agreements since the panics in 08. The actual peak in reverse repurchase agreements was $108 billion on October 15th. Mm-hmm. So it definitely... Well, falls into some questions of of or what I believe is the Fed's kind of confused. It it thinks there's deflation. It showed us by the Fed funds rate that they're holding a specific period, and then they're also doing reverse repurchase agreements. So they're in the middle. Are they hedging it, it their bets? Of, they're hedging their bets, perhaps, huh? Perhaps, and and it it but so that's how I've kind of 
come to the conclusion that I don't expect to see QE3, and especially since they have these other policies or mechanisms that they said that they'll do before they'll move forward with QE3. All right, so so that's uh, that's your reason for not believing QE3 is imminent right now. Uh, there, there are a lot of people out there that are quite convinced that it is, but I don't know of too many people that look at the balance sheet more closely than you do that are making those comments. So, and, and uh, another statement mm -hmm. that Bernanke said at a press conference on June 22nd was, he, and that was at the beginning of summer, everyone was saying, you know, QA3, QE3 at each spot where Bernanke was going to talk at a speech. And it, he made the statement that August of 2010 was a much different situation. And that's why they went forward with QE. And he was saying that as early as just at the end of June. So if he's saying that August was a different situation, what makes us think he's going to now just jump in on QE if if he's not seeing the you, you know the um the same weakening in inflation and the and weakening employment. I mean, he actually said that he doesn't see the signs of weakening employment. I mean, I couldn't believe what he was saying, but mm -hmm. that's what he was saying in the speech. And so he doesn't really see the threat, or he didn't see the threat back at the end of June of this mm -hmm. year. Well, um, that's very interesting. So you, your sense is, uh, and you and I were talking at the break a little bit about, uh, is what you see, what you get with Bernanke, and your sense is that it is, that if you take time to read carefully the statements that he makes, uh, that he is being pretty transparent. Is is that what you believe? Yes, absolutely. I often see the way headlines are twisted, and and from what I I always read this his statements before I'll start reading news articles about him, and I, and I'm baffled by how they come up with these headlines. Sometimes the headline it is it doesn't even reflect what he even said in a speech, and it's always pushed towards, well, QE3 is just around the corner because the economy is getting bad. That, that's generally how yeah. everything speaks, how, mm -hmm. how it is portrayed. So so I think what many people are, what many people are not doing is critically thinking or actually forming their own opinion by going to the source documents. Instead, people are taking their spoon-fed quick news knowledge from the talking heads from from the articles and letting that influence instead of forming their own opinion from what is actually said mhm mm they're they're letting um they're letting the the talking heads on CNBC tell them what yeah, the Fed was saying and if they're listening to them, they're they're definitely not getting the full story. <laughs> it's uh, no doubt uh, there's some vested interest in keeping people believing that the stock market's going to boom and that everything's going to be honky dory. Here's here's a question for you. Lots of people, lots of gold bug friends of mine, really think that we're going to have hyperinflation. They're convinced we're going to have hyperinflation, and they're convinced that the Fed can quote-unquote, print money and basically debase the currency to the point where the debt is no longer such a, a burden. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, the only way I could see hyperinflation is if there was just a total breakdown of confidence, which I guess is always the wild card. One, But that's not what I believe will happen. I believe that will, will probably happen in the long run, but I don't see it approach like it's, it's right around the corner. It's uh, – especially with rates, the markets are telling us something. The, the rates are low. I, I, I think hyperinflationists don't – quite understand the fundamentals of money creation mm -hmm. because that's really there's limits to it i like the way a lot of people explain fractional reserve banking they always assume that they create the maximum amount no there's a limit that's mm -hmm. theoretical that it that it gets that that large and i think what we saw towards the end of the spring was inflation was happening and it was happening interim during that period, and, and quite substantial. You can see in the CPI and some of the other indexes that that food and energy, despite of the, whether the Fed believes that's inflation or not, that is elevated pricing. And I think the Fed recognized that even with all their QE that they had done to that point, they they started to understand that you know what this is they're they're essentially in a catch-22, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they, I believe they recognize that if they kept on doing this, they would risk possibly blowing things up. But what hyperinflationists miss is that why would the Federal Reserve destroy itself? Mm -hmm. It's owned by the banks, and if it's owned by the banks, why would it want to destroy everything that it has? It, it wants to preserve itself, so it knows its limits, and it's not going to do that. And I think it recognized it in the spring, and then they didn't continue on with QE. And another reason that I, I do not believe they're going to continue with, with QE3. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. At the same time, I can understand why they would want to expand the system because the banks make money when the system is growing when when debt is when li when loans are being made when the system is expanding um, they 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 do want that to happen but they don't want to have the currency that they get paid back in become worthless right yes and they took everything they had in their tools their levers that they could pull and they they pulled every lever they they got the the uh, federal funds rate as low as it could. Well, first off, the reserve requirements essentially were as low as they could go since the mid-'90s with the invention of sweep accounts. Then the federal funds rate is essentially zero. Zero percent has been held since 2008. And then its last real tool it has left is quantitative easing. And when it started buying up all those securities, it, it did that as well and realized that, you know what, no matter what we're doing right now, we're pulling on this lever, and we're not getting the response that we want out of the economy to move forward. So now I think it's into a more of a self-preservation mode at this point, and yeah. will it will hold back from. Maybe it will see how the market conditions move forward. I mean, the the QE. I'm not. I mean, I'm. I hold the right to hold, change my mind as information changes. I hope sure. people will give me that. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and uh, but at this time, I don't see the indications that they would would mm -hmm. be changing that quantitative easing. And that's the thing; it's very dynamic to the environment of of how it moves forward. And and I, 
at this time i don't i don't see a a change in their policy every time they they have talked all summer it's been pretty consistent now the fed really publishes a balance sheet every week does it today update it every week or how does that work yes every week it closes on the wednesday and they 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 uh send it out on thursday after the close of business and people can access that through your blog yes every time i i try to uh, give a summary of every week of the changes that occurred the material changes in the balance sheet and i always end off the the uh post with with a link directly to the balance sheet and also um on the uh, side of the website there's also a direct link as well Excellent. You know, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about your blog site is that you have really contemporary articles that are very, very important, and one that caught my eye, and I'd like you just to comment on it before we conclude our discussion today. One that caught my eye was uh, an op-ed by uh, Timothy Geithner uh, titled, What the World Must Do to Boost Growth. And in that article... Uh, you quoted something from Timothy Geithner, and I'll, I'll just read the quote. In early 2009, the world showed remarkable unity and deployed remarkable financial force in rescuing the global economy. The challenges now are different and cannot realistically be confronted by a repeat of that coordinated global response of financial stabilization and fiscal monetary stimulus, end of quote. What is he talking about here? I think he's pretty clear. He's saying they're not going to repeat what they did in early 2009. It, it's not going to be the same response if things do deteriorate. If that does happen, I don't think we ex can expect to see the same fiscal and monetary stimulus. That's that's how I interpreted his quote, and I found it uh, very, very much something that I'm I have not heard in the mainstream media at this time. What did the Treasury Secretary really mean by that comment? That is very interesting. That is very, very interesting, and it certainly is not what the boys at CNBC are expecting or what they say they're expecting anyway, because this would really be a complete reversal of of this enormous and aggressive monetary and fiscal policy of the TARPs and the, and the huge amounts of money and the bailouts and everything else that took place. Um, th this is... Uh, this is really very, very, very interesting, and, and one wonders if they've got some other tricks up their sleeve. Um, what do you think? I think I think they probably know they're at the end of the road as far as how much they're able to to influence. I think I, I would say it's in undisputed that Keynesian economics has been a failure, and. Uh, they can always say, well, we should have spent more, and I'm sure that'll be the argument till every Keynesian economist goes to their grave, but it wouldn't have mattered in, in the end. And, yeah. and I think they recognize that, and I think they're, they're going – I think things are going to be different. If we do uh, develop a market panic, I would not expect to, to see the intervention – like we had seen later in 2008. And, and what I found really fascinating was uh, Bernanke's speech the other day in Minneapolis where he had brought up a term called the fundamental strengths of the economy. And I remember hearing that exact term over and over again from Bernanke and Hank Paulson all through the summer of 2008 
and even the President of the United States, everyone would have, say in a speech, well, the fundamentals of the economy are strong. Yeah. I read that in a speech from Minneapolis, Minnesota, mm-hmm. and, and I had that flashback to that time. And, and I would just love to question these guys uh, what they mean by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the fundamentals of, of uh, the fundamental strength of the economy is very strong. Was no doubt said to try to keep confidence of the American people in place, don't you think? Well, yeah, so it, it's so vague, but I guess mm-hmm. that's what many politicians have. Well, I guess that's vagueness. Is, I mean, uh, <laughs> the devil is in the detail, and they don't want to be identified with the devil, I guess. That's about it. Well, this is fascinating stuff, John. I really thank you for your time. Uh, definitely like to keep up with you, and, and I'm going to be trying to visit your blog site, and maybe sometimes when some of these issues come up that are contemporary, that are really important in terms of which way the markets go, like this one, I think could very well be certainly something people should ponder because I think the masses of people expect that we're going to keep getting our heroin fix whenever the economy is ready to tank. Uh, And if that's not going to be there, if the rug is pulled out from underneath the anticipation, then we better be ready. And if there is going to be some sort of bottomless pit in which this economy falls into, then God help those that aren't ready for it, I guess. Any any closing thoughts? No, that I wish we could end it on something positive. Well, uh, <laughs> let, let's just say positive, I believe, is going back to real money instead of the mysterious stuff. The positive things and what people have been doing that have recognized that this is a house of cards that our economy has been built on, fiat money, debt money instead of asset money, is they have been going to gold, gold mining companies and so that reminds me that we all we are out of time but coming back on the other side of the break we are going to be talking to the ceo of one of the most fascinating new gold mining companies exploration companies that that i know of so don't go away folks we're going to be right back It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Merix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper-gold-rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi-billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world-class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. 
Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love and ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Tim Searcy. He is the CEO of a company, a new and upcoming company, I believe, called RX Gold. It trades uh, on the Toronto Exchange uh, under the symbol AYX, approximately 162 million shares outstanding, trading at 62 cents, giving it a market cap of around $100 million, fully diluted 184.7 million shares Outstanding. Welcome, Tim, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, thanks a lot for having me, Jay. Really good to have you. Um, you are a very experienced mining guy, uh, um, a geologist, and you've been around this business for a while. Uh, you're operating in Namibia, and I want to ask you a little about that con- country because I think a lot of our listeners probably are not all that familiar with Namibia. Uh, but uh, first I'd like to ask you more specifically about your projects and what you're doing in Namibia. Do you have a flagship property? Uh, yes, we do, Jay. It's called uh, the Ojikoto Gold Project. Ojikoto. Ojikoto. Um, and I'll let you. Uh, I'll let our listeners figure out how to spell that, unless you want to spell it. <laughs> how, what is the spelling? Just help me out a little bit on this. Sure. It's Ojikoto is O T J I K O T O. Okay. It always helps me to be able to sort of visualize the spelling of something when I try to pronounce, especially a name I'm not familiar with. Well, do you have a, a gold resource on that project at this time? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. We have uh, 1.8 million ounces at a grade of 1.4. That would be combined, indicated, and inferred. But within that, there is a, a higher-grade core. That, that initial number I quoted you was at a 0.4 cutoff grade, mm-hmm. 4 grams per ton. At a 0.8 grams per ton cutoff grade, there's a, a, a resource of 1.5 million ounces at a grade of 1.9 grams. So mm-hmm. uh, and a, a pretty nice high-grade core for an open pit deposit. Right. Indeed. Uh, these days, a lot of projects are making money at less than a grand. Yeah. Let me ask you, Tim, uh, what sort of um, gold prices were assumed in that, in that study? Well, uh, the, the resource really didn't, didn't, wasn't calculated off of a, a gold price, but we have recently put out some economics on the project mm-hmm. just, just this week or this last week, and uh, we assumed a gold price of $1,300 an ounce. 
uh-huh. and uh, a South African rand or a Namibian dollar. The Namibian dollar is pegged to the South African rand at mm-hmm. a rate of 7.5 per U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And that generated a, a project a net present value pre-tax of $300 million mm-hmm. and an internal rate of return of 42%. Wow, that's pretty, pretty robust. What, uh, what yeah, discount was used on? Oh, yeah, that, that was that was at a five percent discount, Jay. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. But what sort of you can give our listeners some sort of sense of the arithmetic of the uh, the uh, the economics here? How many ounces of gold would you be producing? That, that would uh, that, that would uh, it's good for the project would be a hundred thousand or a hundred and ten thousand ounces a year. Mm-hmm. So that's an average, is it? You would have yeah, to, average, would... average 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 uh, production of one hundred ten thousand ounces per year for. For ten years of uh, of mining, plus uh, about a year and a half of low-grade stockpile processing after that. Mm-hmm. What would be the cash cost of production? Cash cost is uh, about seven hundred dollars an ounce, and that reflects a, a significant strip rate on the project of about seven to one. Oh, okay. Even with a seven to one stripping ratio, seven parts waste, one part ore. Your cost is under around seven hundred dollars. That's right. That's right. But that's made up for with the with the very low capex. Capex. Mm-hmm. Okay. What I was going yeah, yeah. to ask you, the capex is expected to be what? It, only one hundred thirty million dollars. Mm-hmm. And that's with uh, twenty million. That's including twenty million of contingencies. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> $130 million. Um, yeah, so relatively cheap uh, on the construction phase, and, and there may be an opportunity then to, to include some pre-strip in that, which would then uh, lower the uh, cash operating costs. So we, we have some flexibility in exactly how we want to manage the, uh, uh, the, the, the incurrence of those costs. So we're looking at about a 10-year mine life uh, at this stage. Yeah. What, um, what are the chances of expanding this deposit um, Beyond uh, what did you say? One point? How many? One point four million? No, one point eight million, depending on the cutoff. Yeah, the resource uh, well, at one point eight. Look, we think it's pretty mm-hmm. good, Jay. Um, mm-hmm. there, 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 there's a number of deposits around the world uh, that are very similar to Ojikoto, and um, look at these things are all bigger. You know, we have some twenty million ounces, some fifteen million ounces, and even uh, just down the road in Namibia, uh, the Namibia has one producing gold mine. It's owned by Anglo Gold, and um, you know it's a, it's a five million ounce resource. It's already produced 1.5 million ounces, and this thing, its name is Navichab. It's the exact same age as Ojikoto. It's hosted in the exact same host rocks, and it's a lot on a parallel structure to uh, the structure that hosts Ojikoto. So it's mm-hmm. some very very uh, striking similarities between the two, and uh, you know Navichab uh, uh, grew. Uh, was much much smaller when they initially put it into production. So it, 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 they've had a tremendous amount of discovery success there uh, after the asset went into production. Mm-hmm. So are you you're currently drilling now and looking to expand this resource and and also perhaps uh, upgrade the existing resource? Yeah, yeah. We have five rigs on site right now, Jay. And, five. And, oh. Yeah, five. And uh, so we're drilling it pretty aggressively. And um, really, what we're doing now is. For, for, for the remainder of this calendar year, or, or for the next couple of months at least, we're going to be uh, completing some infill drilling on the resource, bringing all that inferred material up into the indicated category uh, for, for uh, a, re, a new resource calculation in um, uh, Q1 of, uh, of 2012. 
And after we've completed that infill drilling, we're going to turn the rigs uh, a long strike, and there's an enormous uh, geophysical anomaly that uh, continues to the south of the deposit that we really want to test for its uh, for its uh, resource growth potential. Uh, what can you give us some idea of the uh, of the size of that anomaly? Yeah, look at the anomaly's 10 kilometers long. Hmm. Ojikoto, the resource makes up the top two and a half kilometers of that anomaly. Hmm. And there's there's over 600 drill holes into Ojikoto, but for the remaining uh, seven kilometers of the strike length, there's only seven drill holes. Hmm. So there's ah. the, it's not not tested at all, and uh, some significant potential for growth, we believe. I'd sure like to ask you, but I know you can't comment on what you think we might see in Q1 of next year in terms of a resource. But yeah, here, yeah okay. um, we're going to have to wait to, to, to do that calculation ourselves. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and have you had some drill results back from your current drill program that is not factored into the current resource? Yeah, absolutely. And, in fact, we have uh, some, some new zones identified within the pit, uh, new gold zones identified within the pit that uh, – that, that have not been included in the economic analysis. So we know that strip rate's going to come down. We know the life of mine is going to be extended. Um, so uh, as far as that, uh, the economic assessment goes, uh, we're, we're very confident it's a base case and uh, that we can greatly improve upon it. Now, you did what is known as a preliminary economic assessment, a PEA for short. Uh, most of the time before projects go into production, there needs to be a bankable feasibility study. When do you think that could, that could occur? Well, we're moving right into the bankable or definitive feasibility, some people call it, uh, right out of the PEA. So we're just going to wait for that new resource come Q1 and, and use that new resource as the basis for the, uh, the pit modeling. Um, but we're continuing with all the background studies, the metallurgical test work, the geohydrology, and, and, and all sorts of other geotechnical studies that need to be completed uh, for that definitive feasibility. And um, the last guidance we gave to the market for completion of that was Q2 2013. However, we'll be updating the market uh, by December of this year, and we think we can materially uh, uh, bring that uh, delivery date forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it's uh, more often than not in the mining industry, things slip backwards rather than forward, but I know you've had a pretty good track record of keeping on schedule or, or getting ahead of schedule. You have, um, um, I'm wondering, Namibia is a country that may not be that familiar to a lot of our listeners. Could you talk to us a little bit about Namibia? Uh, its political and economic system, its legal system. How risky is it? Because a lot of people are worried about going to places they don't understand or don't know. You know, what's the rule of law like there, Tim? Yeah, look, this is, uh, you know, and it may be, it's easy to paint some African countries with a broad brush and just yeah. call it Africa in general. And I know for most Americans or North Americans, that, that might conjure up some images of uh, Ethiopia or Somalia, these things they've seen on the TV with dusty little shanty towns. But I can tell you, um, you know, Namibia would be far much more like uh, some small-town rural Arizona than it would be anything else. It's a, it's a desert country, has a very high standard of living. Uh, it, it has an excellent infrastructure base. Um, basically, the locals call it Africa light or Africa for beginners. You know, if, 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 if Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie feel comfortable going there to have their children born, then uh, look at it. It's, it's, it's not a bad place to work. Yeah, it's very interesting. You have a, a 1.8 million ounce resource, or a 1.4 using, uh, using a higher cutoff. 
what, how does, and you've got a market cap about $100 million, as you said. How do you compare, I know you can't really compare companies, but sort of broadly you can. The market capitalization, how is the market treating you for a company with 1.8 million ounces compared to some of the others? Um, listen, you know, you, the, 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 uh, the valuations that the market gives these uh, companies can, can, can be pretty wide, but you can often often see uh, a, good, a good way to judge these things is what they might go for in a transaction or an acquisition. Mm-hmm. And in these cases, you typically see these assets go for about $150 million or $150, excuse me, $150 per uh, ounce, per ounce. Uh, uh-huh. life of mine. Mm-hmm. And right now, our life of mine model has about 1.1 to 1.2 ounces or 1.2 million ounces in it. Uh-huh. So uh, you're looking at something closer to $200 million there than certainly the $100 million that we're at right now. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, of course, based on the resource that you have now, and you are in the process of upgrading that, and most likely we'll see a higher number sometime in Q1 of, uh, of next year. Yeah, that, that, that's the hope, Jay. What, um, anything else you think our listeners should know about before we conclude our discussion today? Well, well, just to just to further continue that uh, the, the comment on, on Namibia and uh, and its uh, political risk, you know, uh, sure. Namibia and Botswana, the two countries in southern Africa, they're right beside each other. Namibia being on the coast, mm-hmm. are, are regularly considered the top two investment jurisdictions in uh, in uh, in Africa. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I mean, what really separates Namibia is is is, is in fact its 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 rule of law and its constitution. Contract laws are enforceable. Uh, mm-hmm. Minority rights are enforced. Minorities have rights, and uh, and property values or property rights are, are mm-hmm. enforceable. So that it really separates uh, Namibia from an operating jurisdiction in that sense. And the mining industry is a very comp- big component of Namibia's economy. So uh, the Namibian uh, politicians recognize that they need to encourage more of it, and they've certainly been encouraging us to advance this project uh, as quick as we possibly can. But it's important to know that they have other mining operations there, and so the regulatory framework is in place in order to, uh, in order to, um, you know, to allow regulations and and to allow permits and so forth to take place. So it really is a very interesting story, Tim. It's one I'm going to want to watch more carefully for my own subscribers, and and perhaps talk about it from time to time on the radio show as well, because we are really in a in a time I think when gold mining is the bull market of a lifetime, my lifetime for sure. I don't think I'll see another bull market in gold mining shares as we're seeing right now. So uh, it it is a very interesting story, and I want to thank you very much for coming on uh, my show to tell our listeners about uh, about RX Gold. Um, So I I look forward to having you on again sometime, and thanks again, Tim. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Jay, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Really good to have you. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to come right back with some comments on the market and on gold mining in particular. So don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. 
Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper gold rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www www.rypatchgold.com Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a love and ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I believe, I have this sense that we are very, very near a major breakout in the gold mining sector. And indeed, even as I'm saying that, I've noticed on the screen here uh, the tape showing Newmont Mining up $3.63 today. That's up 5.5% today. Uh, this is a day when the gold market is up uh, a bit. Uh, actually, it's up $27, but it's been sort of sort of correcting recently uh, down into the high 1700s. Uh, but the real issue is not what the nominal price of gold is. And I keep talking to my subscribers about this and when I give presentations and various talks around the country and in Canada. What really matters from a gold miner's point of view is the real price of gold. What will an ounce of gold buy? How is gold compared to the items that you have to spend to get the gold out of the ground. How is gold relative to energy and materials and labor, etc.? And what we know is that, uh, as I said so often, before Lehman Brothers, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. It exploded to 44% by March of 2009. It is currently at about 46.5%. Uh, an ounce of gold will buy nearly 46.5% of that fund, which is uh, you know made up of base metals, energy, um, uh, food items, clothing items, etc. the cost of staying alive. Well, what we're seeing is an explosion in the profits of the major mining companies, the Newmonts being one of seven that we track, that I track, and we are seeing projected by the analysts, projected earnings next year, 2012, 4.2 times higher than they were in 2008. So in four years, it's more than quadrupled. The earnings are going up and exploding very dramatically. And as we talked earlier today to Bill Howell of Rye Patch Gold, we're, uh, the big guys are producing millions of ounces of gold a year, and they cannot find those ounces to replace 
And so they are looking down to companies like Rypatch, who we interviewed today, like Oryx Gold, who we just heard from Tim Searcy a few minutes ago. These are companies that have the managerial expertise, the ability to find huge amounts of gold, uh, and they are on to it. And with the bull market, there's lots of capital going in, and these are little companies that have minuscule market caps that can literally explode in price. Now, we're not promising anything for any one company. My strategy is to buy a portfolio of these companies. You're going to have some really big winners. You're going to have some other guys that don't do so well, and they may disappoint you. But we are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold. We will never see another bull market like this. And incidentally, Bob Hoy just put out a piece today, and he was talking, in fact, literally minutes before we went on the show today, Bob Hoy put out a a release talking about uh, his technical analysis is suggesting that we are very close to where we were in the late 1970s. And I don't know how many of you out there in, uh, in my listening audience are as old as I am. I was a young man during the last bull market in the late 70s, and gold mining shares literally exploded. We saw companies that had virtually nothing in the ground at that time selling at 15 and $20 a share. This time, the fundamentals are much stronger. There's lots of companies out there with lots of good gold in the ground, but they're going to be sold for $500, $600, $700, $800, a $1,000 an ounce uh, and millions of ounces. And overnight, uh, we've seen some of these companies already go from pennies to dollars in a very short order. And I think the time is here for that. And Bob Hoy's uh, technical work, uh, his excellent technical work, is also saying the time is here. Bob was kind of thinking that the gold shares would get taken down with a general equity market decline. Uh, but gold, ha- the shares have not risen with this major rise in the gold market. So Bob is comparing now to 1978-79. Anyway, that's about all the time we have for this week. I do want to remind you that next week we're going to have a really interesting uh, guest. is Dr. Jim Walker. He's an Austrian school economist who is extremely bearish on China. Yes, uh, a sort of a contrary opinion, very bullish on India. So you won't want to miss Dr. Walker. I had a great conversation with him pre-recorded. You'll hear him next week on my show. In closing, I want to thank the staff at Voice America, starting with Tacey Trump, my executive producer, and Justin Jackman, my crackerjack engineer. Thanks to both of you and all the people at Voice America for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on Voice America. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about-